morning, Ted Luma. You're listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted at KPCALP, Petaluma, California. Good morning. This is Rabbi Ted Feldman. I'm the rabbi of B'nai Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma and also the chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. Welcome back to this week's show. We have two guests this morning. During the second segment, we'll be meeting with Tracy Perlich, who, among other things, is president of the Petaluma Tennis Association. Uh, and to hear during our first segment, I'm happy to welcome uh, Dr. Ziv Rubinowitz. Uh, he is a visiting professor at Sonoma State University, a graduate of the University of Haifa, political scientist, uh, author of a recently published book, uh, Menachem Begin and the Israel-Egypt Peace Process Between Ideology and Political Realism. And we're going to solve the entire Mideast crisis today in our 27 minutes together. So he's all prepared. Welcome to the studio today. Thank you very much, and uh, happy Passover. And happy Passover to you. It's great to have you here. Well, well, given all the matzah out there, we can feed people some crumbs about Definitely. hope for the future. I'm sorry, Jim, I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> okay. There's lots of matzah crumbs are famous during the holiday of Passover and where they appear in our homes uh, over this time. So it's great to have you here. So how long have you been in uh, in this area? What what brought you here? I'm finishing my second year at, out of three at uh-huh. Sonoma State. Um, the Israel Institute uh, sent me here as a teaching fellow uh, at the Jewish uh, Studies Program, uh, which means that I'm teaching four classes per year uh, about Israel, a bit about the Middle East also about uh, around uh, in my ex- in my expertise, I mean, uh, would be more foreign policy issues and uh, domestic politics of Israel. These are the classes that I'm teaching. So you have foreign and domestic policies yeah. of Israel figured out. I'm trying. <laughs> That's a challenge. That is certainly a but challenge. I'm, but it's always so dynamic that I'm actually uh, all the time, uh, I have to keep uh, with the beat, you know, and, and follow the news from back home and see, oh, how I need to so- all of a sudden change all of my presentations sometimes uh, all, for within an hour because something happened and I need to uh, uh, come as uh, prepared as, as I can and up to date to my students. Well, that happens. Uh, I can get a tweet immediately in this country yeah. and the world is all different than it True. was 10 minutes earlier. True. This so. is why usually about half an hour before I go into class, I check that everything's still okay. <laughs> I check online. I know. <laughs> I know. It's, an, it's evolving. And um, I'm going to want to talk maybe a little later if we have time about the students that you're teaching here in Sonoma County and what that experience has been like for you. But obviously, over the past few weeks, the, the news from, certainly from Israel, has been the re-election right. of, um, uh, of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu right. as uh, prime minister, and he's attempting to put the coalition. Right. So bef- we can get into a little bit of detail. Do you have any overall reactions and thoughts about what happened and what it means for, for Israel? Right. Uh, well, first of all, let's say that it was not not expected that he will win. Let's say this way. I mean, uh, he, the the right wing bloc is the largest in Israel. There's no doubt about it. Um, but because of the composition of the Israeli polity, um, that we have so many parties running, then you might find different composition of of the party uh, uh, system of how things might turn out. But the right wing bloc is 
dominant. And Netanyahu actually said that from the very beginning that he wants, from the beginning of this campaign, that he would want to continue with this uh, with this coalition that he had just now to continue with it. And most of this coalition will continue with him, except for those who uh, did not cross the threshold. Uh, and they have the majority. And it's quite obvious that they, they will continue uh, dominating. We He just got the mandate last week from the president to, uh, to form the new government. We'll need to see, uh, let's say, after Passover, it will become serious at negotiations. There will be some uh, uh, hard times for him. Uh, parties will start squeezing him uh, for more and more. We know that. That's, that's the tradition. But within a month, we'll have a, a new coalition, probably uh, a right-wing coalition similar to the current one, although... In some respects, more even more far right uh, leaning than it was now. Yeah, it's it's hard for the American voter to understand that there were 40 parties right. running yeah. in this recent election. True, right? actually, in Israel right now there are uh, re- registered 129 parties, but most of them are ghost parties. They don't really exist. They're just on the shelf. Uh, out of them, 47, eventually 47 lists were, uh, were um, uh, submitted to the committee, and only 40 uh, came to the, came to the uh, ballot, to the, to the election day itself. Uh, others either dropped or were, you know, were disqualified for different reasons. So eventually, yeah, Israelis had 40 uh, options on the table. But most of them are not are, are uh, really not, not uh, serious. So we had only 13 to 14 that were uh, um, potential to, to cross the threshold. So those 13 or 14 receive enough votes yeah. in order to be able to be... Yes, there is a threshold of 3.25% of the population that has to uh, vote for, for one party, for that party, in order for it to, uh, to cross the threshold and get four seats in the Knesset, which is 120 seats. Um, and one party, which was really surprising, uh, uh, the new right of the Minister of Education, I should say outgoing Minister of Education, Naftali Bennett, and outgoing Minister of Justice, Ayelet Chaked, they were very close. They were only a, about 1,500 votes away from the threshold, but they didn't cross it. They didn't cross it. Yeah. It's so hard in this country where we, we panic when we get a third party right. running into, right. in our presidential or national elections. It's right. so hard for us to comprehend right. 40 parties right. and people make choices. That's, a, that's like part, that. in a way part of the beauty of the system that you can have, you can replace it, say that you, you don't need to say uh, impeach the president and get, get, then get his vice president in. You might actually get a turnover to the, to the opposition that will take over because enough parties will defect from the coalition to the opposition. All of a sudden it will have a majority and they can take over. So in a way, it balances, there is a different type of, of checks and balances in the Israeli system uh, that all the time, also that your opponent is always there. I mean, think of the, le- the recent elections here when Hillary Clinton lost, she was out, completely out of, out of politics. She can speak only because people want to hear her, but she has no, no power. Uh, unlike uh, uh, in Israel, the, op- the main opponents of Netanyahu will be there to challenge him on a daily basis in the Knesset. So in some ways, it's it's a more democratic system, but there's a more less pluralistic, stable, I'd more say, more pluralistic yeah. and more but less stable in a certain way. Yes and no. I mean, <laughs> note that Netanyahu is ten years and two weeks in office already in a row. That's quite stable. That is quite. But stable. on the other yeah. hand, on the on a daily basis, he needs to be sure that everyone in his coalition indeed are there. Uh, that's his problem. 
Yeah, so... <laughs> so he needs to please them all the time. That's a, that's what, what happens. Right, and uh, that's, a, that's a challenge for the Prime Minister Definitely. of Israel, no matter who's sitting uh, in that chair. So, I mean, from, from the American population viewpoint, the, the big issues aren't about how is the road from Haifa to Tel Aviv doing, and does it need repaving, and will the Prime Minister see to it that it's done? It's about the international standing of Israel. Right. It's about the relationship with the Palestinians. What, is the, what does this election mean in that whole balance over there? What does that look like to you? Simply said, more of the same. Nothing will change, probably. Uh, I don't see any, uh, uh, at least not from Netanyahu's point of view, any pressure now to uh, start a peace process. I mean, these last four years, he had no conversations at all, I think, with, uh, with Abu Mazen, the president of the Palestinian Authority. So, in a way, he doesn't have any incentives to, to push forward, unless for any reason that it seems now very hypothetical, he will have a unity government with the centrist uh, party, uh, Blue and White, and then they might actually push him to, to do something. But uh, other than that, I guess everyone is waiting for June to hear about the greatest deal of the century coming out, and then we'll Such see. Such a deal. Yeah. <laughs> Such a deal. We don't know what this exactly. deal is going to look like. But meanwhile, the whole... Um, the whole issue with the Palestinians just remains open and yes. fills the territory over there right. of the world sure. with more pain and yes. consistent challenges. Definitely. And and then you see that it, uh, Netanyahu has gone into a mode of uh, uh, conflict management and not conflict resolution. I mean, that's something that... Uh, also, that is obvious that in the last eight, ten years that he's not really going for any any deal. Therefore, uh, he's just managing and hoping for the best uh, to to happen eventually. The problem is that Israel doesn't have any uh, any trust in the Palestinian Authority leadership right now. Abu Mazen is. I'm not. He's old. He's ill. I'm not sure how long he will still be there. Who will replace him? And. Yeah, he suggested no, no, you, no, 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 no I, I, I don't, I don't think I fit. Um, I don't speak Arabic. <laughs> um, but, um, all, but, also, don't forget that Israel is just twenty, is fifteen to twenty years after the Second Intifada, and most of the generation that lives now remembers and uh, very, very vividly uh, how terrible. I mean, buses explode and all that. So they see the Palestinians as, as, a, as a. a uh, are people that you can resonate with, I think. Uh, many, many, most Israelis would do that. The left might still, I mean, they're still talking. Meretz certainly is still talking about uh, getting to a two-state solution and, and all that, but that's, they, they are virtually uh, uh, insignificant right now. All of the left, the labor and Meretz together, only 10 seats in the coming Knesset. Mm. It will be uh, inaugurated only after, after the holiday, uh, next week. Um, that the new Knesset will come in. And then you'll see all of a sudden that the, the left is only 10, ten people. Uh, so we are, we're often referring to the Palestinian Authority and right. the, uh, as the key to ultimately, hopefully, the making of peace of some sort. Yeah. But on the southern border, we have Hamas sitting there. Right. And we have the military situation right. that is constantly... Uh, res in resurgence down yeah. there, with there's never been long periods of, of peace on that border. True. And, um, you know, I, I hear all the time, particularly in this progressive part of the world, why is Israel bombing them? Well, those rockets are coming. I mean, I, I don't understand why, 
why people think that Israel shouldn't respond when they're being bombed. Yeah, well, I think the, 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 the issue here is not the question of can Israel bomb or not, but, but it always seems that Israel is using excessive force, no matter what it does. Right. Therefore, that's the problem. I think that's the problem. The so, perce- at least the perception of it, if yeah. not the reality yeah. of it. Yes. Although definitely, a, a lot, many times Israel is going there, w- w- becoming wild, if you want, uh, intentionally in order to t- to signal to the other side, Hamas or Hezbollah, and, uh, in Lebanon when, uh, when they go, uh, well, 15 years ago, almost uh, 13 years ago, when where they were at war, that. You should stop now before we really destroy you, uh, destroy uh, all of your infrastructure. I mean, uh, around. Right, and I, you know, I have a feeling that many Americans, certainly those who have not been there, have little idea of how small Israel really is. Yeah, I remember I had a group with me many, many years ago. We were up on the Golan, so it was obviously after '67. And we're standing there giving them information. The tour guide is giving his little spiel and all that. And out of Lebanon comes this little rocket okay. floating across the sky wow. and lands in a field okay. uh, down below. Okay. And people were just, they, they couldn't understand. Right. What, what, what's that? It's a rocket from Lebanon. Lebanon's right, right over there. Right. It's just yes. a, a small country. It's, yeah, it is. Actually, it's, uh, it's funny. I mean, uh, as, you, uh, as you said, I'm, I researched begging a lot. When he went to Jimmy Carter in the first meeting in, June 9, in July 1977, he took a map um, of Israel, still with, uh, of course, with Sinai, uh, um, and a map of, uh, of Georgia. Uh, with planes at the center, and you put Jerusalem on planes to try to explain to the American president, who probably doesn't understand anything, of how limited and how narrow Israel is, uh-huh. and how, what the problems that Israel has. So I don't know if he showed it to him, but definitely he took it with him. Uh-huh. If I have it in the archives, it's probably it was someone prepared such a right, such a map. <laughs> yeah, we really have little concept of that. I mean, even the state of California. At one point, we used to publish a map of the state of California okay. with Israel superimposed on it, yeah. and it didn't obviously didn't even fill the state of, course, of California. Of course. I, think the, I think the closest state uh, in size would be New Jersey, right? Yeah, New Jersey is the closest yeah. state. Still than, and still bigger than, New Jersey is still bigger than Israel, and more towns per square. Yeah. Although population-wise, I mean, Israel itself is like New York City. Uh-huh. Uh, right. So... I mean, one of the things that I I hope that people will understand as we're talking about this is that security and politics are intimately connected there. Definitely. And the security isn't necessarily about internal terrorists blowing things up, although we've gone through areas of that. But it's the external pieces uh, that Israel worries about, too. And that is what Israelis go to vote over, is mostly on security issues. It's not, uh, unlike Americans who usually vote on their economy uh, uh, situation, in Israel it's security, security. This is exactly why Netanyahu is always playing this card. And anyone who is trying to challenge him needs to uh, uh, meet his his own positions on this. So what's what's happened with the peace camp in Israel? You know, the uh, the liberals, those who think we should just uh, sit down, have our conversations. Right. What what's happened with that? The first of all, a lot of there are a lot of liberals, and they moved more to the centrist parties. In a way, they backed they they pushed away from the left 
uh, Labour Party once was uh, their, their representative, but in a way, I think that the left never really recovered from Rabin's assassination in 1995. They never really got a, 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 a parallel uh, or a, a good substitute as a, as a leader. Barak was perhaps closest, but the way that he ran yeah. the government was so terrible that people actually backed away from him and then from the Labour Party and then started preferring in recent years more and more the centrist parties that are saying that they're willing to do anything. I mean, there is a, in Israel, in, if you check the Israeli polls, you'll find that you're still ha you'll still find um, a majority of Israelis who support the two-state solution. The question is now, or later, because they don't trust uh, the Palestinians at this point, and how much are they willing to give? Uh, that, that, that's really where the, the trick is. And yes, you do have still Meretz who definitely are saying, yes, we need to go for the two states on the, on, uh, on the six, uh, 67 borders. Others no longer say that. They're, they want different, a different uh, um, uh, re resolution, but still in the framework of a two-state solution. So there is a camp that wants this. Um, they're just dispersed uh, by in, in too many parties and some of and most of them move to the center because the leadership of the left is not attractive at this point. Be, they became, in recent years, the Labour Party became more socialist than anything else. They don't have a foreign policy leader mm. at this point. No, no one. And they are the country, they, they, they established the country. They usually always had someone leading them who was a foreign policy or a security expert. They don't have anyone right now. So... On the ground in Israel, not in the government and not uh, on the front pages of the newspaper, uh, Israelis and Arab citizens of Israel, uh, Jewish Israelis, Arab Israelis, they're relating to each other on a daily basis yes. constantly. And Palestinians are coming in a little bit, not as much as they used to, but to work in industries uh, in, in the, within the borders of Israel. At that level, what, what, what goes on? Is, you know, I, I think people should also understand that Israel is not the front page of the newspaper. And right. um, people are working together. Right. They, they're sharing their personal stories. Yes. Their pains about each other's narrative. True. You know, I, I, uh, I was really impressed when I was there. Oh, I lost track of years here. But I, I sat with Uri Avneri, mm -hmm. who was one of the great liberal, progressive liberals uh, uh, of, uh, of Israel. And he, he taught me the, the very, very important point of, uh, as long as we are arguing about the past, we'll never be able to move to the future because we're never going to agree that 1948 was the war for independence or the Nakba, the, right. the catastrophe. Right. And that that's really where we need to be able to go. Yes, well, although you can't really uh, put the past behind. Uh, it's, it's there, it's relevant, it's, it's, it's on the table, it's around you. Um, but then the question is, can you do the, the, that leap of going and looking only to the future? This is basically what the left is saying, the far left is saying, let's try to get to a, a better future without uh, and putting the... the, the, the past in the right context, perhaps. Of, mm -hmm. I mean, putting it in a way behind us and let's move on. 
on a daily basis, yes, a lot of people would want. I mean, also the, the, there's a, this alienation of the Arabs, the Arabs in Israel and the Arab population by Netanyahu and his associates. Certainly they, they are trying to push them out of the, of the Israeli political system as much as they can. And, um, but on the ba daily basis, most Arabs seem to want to be part of the system, but want to be part of Israel, part of the society. Work in a decent job, uh, learn, edu get, getting education, uh, doing well. Uh, yeah, they do have that other, uh, perhaps, uh, identity also as, as part of the Palestinian people. Therefore, they might uh, want, certainly they, they would push for Palestinian statehood, but they want to be part of Israel. Then the question is, how does it reflect into politics? And there's one thing that you need to, to have here uh, in mind is that in Israel, Everything is political. Everything is you can't, political. You cannot, you, you cannot get away from that. You can't, I, yeah. It's true, and people sit around talking about it in the cafes. All parties do everything. Parties, everybody, it's, it's always there. And there's, very little, there's very little for the, for the uh, civic society to do here. I mean, actually, everything is done by the parties, by the, by the Knesset, by the government. Uh, that, that's part of the, the story of Israel. Right, and, of course, politicians are called by first names there. Nicknames. And nicknames. Right. BB and all this, yeah, right? Right. There was a time when it was... We uh, don't talk about Donald. BB, Bougie, yeah. Bogie, CP, yeah. and so on and so we on. We don't talk <laughs> about Donald here. We don't uh, use that you, word. You used to. You used to. <laughs> In that way. <laughs> Not the, the Donald. The oh, Donald. The Donald, yes. <laughs> so I, I want to take you away from, from that piece in our remaining five, six minutes here. Um, so you've been teaching here for two years, and I'm wondering what... Uh, what kinds of students are choosing to take the courses? And I also wonder. What you wonder <laughs> too? You get to see them and grade it. Um, and what uh, what what's your reaction to the people you're meeting? What are they interested in? What's that been like? Are they right. challenging? Are they what, what's that? Yeah. Like? Well, um, I do have. We do have, from what I understand, something like seven percent of the of Sonoma State uh, student body are Jewish. Okay. Um, out of that would be quite a lot of people, but I get only not not everyone uh, come in. Um, perhaps not everyone are interested in the topics that I teach. Maybe if it was a sociologist, it would be more interesting to some people. Um, but I do have uh, Jew, uh, Jewish students who come in. I do have also people who are not Jewish who, who come. Uh, sometimes it's just because I guess they are interested. They seem they're curious about about this topic because you hear about it in the news a lot. But okay, let's try to get uh, to the bottom of of some issues. And uh, there are those who I'm not sure if they they know why why they're in into this. I mean, they again it might be just. Uh, because they can take uh, such a course. They're, they're testing, perhaps. Mm -hmm. uh, but certainly Jewish uh, students do come in, uh, and some of them know uh, quite a lot. They have a background uh, knowledge. Some of them uh, have not a clear background uh, on these issues. I mean, they, they know something, but not, not enough. So I'm trying to uh, structure this in, in my classes to make it uh, more uh, uh, orderly uh, uh, for them. Um, there is not much challenge, I have to say, in classes. Mm -hmm. Although sometimes people do ask questions, but it's not really challenging. And I'm trying to be as unbiased as I as I possibly can. I mean, I'm not I'm not a, an Israel government uh, spokesperson in any way. It's not my job. Um, and so I'm trying to give 
perspective from both sides. I mean, let's say using the the terminology of of the, the war that Israel had, also remind uh, saying what the uh, Arab wording would be, and usually I would prefer uh, in class to say the date, I mean 1967, 1973, and so on, to keep it as, as open as, as possible. Um, I mean, being as uh, as an academic, I think this is uh, how, I, how I should see this, because also I can never know in advance who will be coming to my classes, who will take them, and I it's not a question of being offensive or not, I, mean, I need to be real and uh, in, in how I do it. So, uh, yeah, I, I have... I have an a interesting uh, 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 student body. I have to say that a lot of them just don't know. I mean, uh, don't don't know the facts. They don't. They're not into this, and we and we need to. Um, uh, I, I this is how this is how I see it. That we need to. Uh, I need to give them the, the basis, the basics. So, uh, have there been any Palestinian students in there? Uh, no, not a, not that I know of. But also, I, I'm not aware if there are any. Okay. I, I just okay. don't know. Yeah, I, you know, uh, I would hope, I, I believe that ultimately when people talk to each other, that there's improvement in relationships. Yeah. <coughs> because when there are these walls and one group talks about, yeah. the other group talks about, Definitely. they don't get very And, bad. well, we were talking of American Jews, uh, mostly from, from this area. Yeah. Uh, also, there are people from outside of, of Sonoma County. Um, and, and when they, uh, um, and I talk with them also about the Jews, let's say in my class on uh, and the U.S. Israel relations. I talk also about the Jewish community in relation with Israel. Some of them will know, will uh, sense some of the tensions between Israel at this Orthodox Jewish community versus the uh, much more progressive, uh, conservative, or reformed uh, communities that you have here, with all of the struggles over uh, freedom of religion uh, and so on and so on in Israel. That I mean, it's a, perhaps it's even more harsh towards uh, the reforms than towards uh, Muslims and Christians. Uh, how, how the the Israeli establishment, the rabbinite, uh, is is uh, pushing on these issues to exclude them uh, from the from the public uh, sphere. So this is something that certainly I also talk with them, and that sometimes resonates even more with people because they actually understand because they know from home what they, that, uh, th their problem. So yeah, we we have that. So there are really so many issues, and uh, just to let our listeners know that you will be speaking at B'nai Israel Jewish Center right. on Wednesday, uh, May, May 8th, 8th right. at 7 p.m. Uh, we're at 740 Western Avenue, <laughs> and uh, we're ho that's the eve of Yom Ma'ut, at least. Sure. In, uh, Yom Zikaron in Hebrew, Yom in Israel, Zikaron in there, yeah, yeah sure. Yom Zikaron in Israel. And so we will uh, hopefully solve all of these things that we've touched upon tonight. Within two weeks. Uh, within two weeks. Who knows? Who knows? There, right. <laughs> we'll have. So I want to thank you so much for coming to our studio today, letting our listeners learn about you and your presence in our community. Thank you. And uh, One the more teaching that you're doing. Yeah. Thank you okay. so much for being thank, here. Thank you. And again, Chag Sameach. Chag Sameach. You're listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted at KPCA LP, Petaluma, California. We'll be back in uh, three minutes for the second segment of our program today.
Welcome back to the second segment of Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCALP, Petaluma, California. We're here in the studios, and during the second segment, I welcome uh, Tracy Perlich, who uh, was recommended to me by my assistant producer for this program, uh, Erica Stewart. Why, why did she recommend you to come on the program? I Probably because we play tennis together, so we've become oh, good friends. That's, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Okay. Well, welcome to the studio. Thank you. You know, one of the things I'm discovering in... Uh, in doing this uh, program and meeting so many wonderful people is that we all have our stories, right? Everybody has a story, some good parts, some difficult parts, challenging parts. And I believe that we can learn so much from each other. So I hope that will be our little journey in the next uh, 20 some minutes that we uh, we spend together. Here. Sounds terrific. So who are you and how did you get to Petaluma? And what, what brought you to this community? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, I grew up in a small town in Southern California um, in Ventura, which is on the beach and very much like Petaluma. And my husband... Like on the beach? Did you well, the, yeah, no. Well, we're close to the ocean oh, here. Okay. Ventura's on the beach, but this town feels very much like Ventura uh -huh. to me, the Ventura I grew up in. Uh -huh. And my husband and I would visit a friend up here, and we both said, this is the type of town we want to raise our kids in. And so when our daughter was ready to start school, uh, we were living on the peninsula, and we wanted her in dual immersion, and we were waitlisted at schools down there. It's a very popular uh, program, and it wasn't looking like she was going to get into one of those. And so I connected with a mom up here, and we bugged the old Adobe Union School District and got the enrollment and got a dual immersion program going here. So we moved very quickly, and she started kindergarten in the dual immersion program. Wow. That, that you were, became a community activist before you even, before I even the, got here. That, yes. That's an amazing. It was exciting. That was great. Yeah. That, that was great to, to do that. So well, tell me about the dual immersion program. What are they, what are they doing? So there are many, especially right. in California. Right. And um, uh, the dual immersion program that's here in Petaluma is a Spanish-English, uh -huh. and it's at Loma Vista which is on the east side of town, where the Bernard Eldridge School used to be. And um, it is a model of teaching children in both languages. So um, studies have shown that native language speakers learn better in their own language. But when you are in a country where you already know the, the target language or the, the local language, you can also learn in the second language equally effectively. And so it's really a terrific model for uh, native Spanish speakers to learn English in an academic manner um, without them falling behind. But it's equally great for English speakers, native English speakers, to then become academically proficient in Spanish as well. And so my daughter was in the program until fourth grade. Um, we ended up leaving for different reasons. But she maintained her Spanish and then entered uh, Petaluma High School this year in Spanish 3. Um, and she's the only freshman in there that's in Spanish 3. So uh, dual immersion works. You just got to gotta have faith. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I think yeah. it's, uh, we're kind of spoiled in America with this English-only culture that we yeah. have here. When you travel in other countries of the world, People have uh, multiple language facilities right. that they use. And, and so that's the beauty of teaching them in two different languages. They're learning this rich and beautiful culture outside of the one that we live in, but 
that is so prevalent here as well. So, you know, Mexico is so close that there's a, a lot of traditions that are ingrained in California, and it's really neat to see the kids learn both. Yeah, that's. Uh, and are you professionally working at all? Um, I do uh, contract uh, accounting and HR support. Oh. I, I did work, and then when I had my daughter, um, I was an older mom, and I realized that I could regret not spending time with her, but I'd never regret finding another career. So uh, my husband and I made the decision that I would be primarily de- uh, VP of Domestic Affairs. And, That's quite a uh, title. Right. That's a great title. And so I would be the primary uh, stay-at-home person for the kids. And then I lucked into doing some contract work through some business contacts I had before, and they keep me very busy. It's, it's a great balance. And where does tennis fit into all this? Yeah. So when my kids went to school, um, it was I found myself with a lot of time because you can only spend so much time in the classroom and at school, which I did spend a lot of time there, but I kind of realized I needed to do something for me too. And um, I hadn't played in like 25 years or something. And um, I found Petaluma Valley Athletic Club and Tony there was terrific at getting me back on the courts and introduced me to some women and um, it was just a wonderful way to meet more people in the community and start playing and take care of myself a little bit. So that's great. It's good exercise. And it there's is. an association. How large is the company? So um, when Petaluma Valley Athletic closed uh, in March two years ago, uh-huh. um, Chris Horn, thank goodness, had had the foresight uh, that we needed more community tennis, but not everyone wants to or has the means to belong to a private tennis club. And he had resurrected the Petaluma Tennis Association and asked me to be on the board. And um, so we had this little overlap in time where Petaluma Tennis Association was setting itself up for community tennis. Meanwhile, Petaluma Valley Athletic Club, unbeknownst to us, was actually getting ready to close. And thankfully, when Petaluma Valley Athletic Club closed, a lot of those teams and players moved over to Petaluma Tennis Association. And so we've been able to keep tennis going pretty robustly here in Petaluma. I think we have about 150 members that have renewed for the 2019 year. Um, and um, we aver- we have two or three teams uh, playing each USTA league season. And we had five Sonoma Napa women's teams this year. So, I mean, it's it's the women are keeping tennis going in Petaluma. Well, that's good. <laughs> that's good to know. I know it's hard to find Erica some days. Yeah. Because at least during certain hours in the morning. Must practice, must play in the match, yes. Yeah, must, play, yeah, must <laughs> play in the match. So one of the, one of the um, pieces of her recommendation uh, that you come on the show was uh, something very difficult that happened in your life. Uh-huh. And uh, I believe, and I'm experiencing it myself, that uh, Erica, as a result of knowing you and knowing what happened, uh, saw a certain spark of life and hope and energy and will inside of you that would be a good leadership example for many people in our community. So I think that's really why she recommended you to be here yeah. and not about playing tennis. And although that's a, an important part for her and for you, and I understand that. So um, can you start telling us a little bit of that story? Um, well, when I was uh, 48, 
I went for my annual gynecological appointment, and my OB found a cyst on my thyroid. And I was having some other issues, and she said, you know, you're at the age where thyroids start to cause women some problems. Let's do some blood work. And I had a blood test, and it turned out that I was, quote, car crash anemic, um, which meant that I was um, iron deficient. And that's typically the type of person that presents after a major car accident and has lost a lot of blood. And she said, but you're standing upright, you're not gray, you're physically active, you're healthy otherwise, um, so this has been a slow leak. I'm going to refer you back to your um, regular uh, care physician, and we got to find out where this blood's been going. They put me on this major iron, et cetera, et cetera. We did all these tests, and the long and the short of it is I had a colonoscopy. Everyone kept the, the part that was hard about it was people were like, oh, but you're, you know, you're young, healthy, this and that. It's not going to be cancer. It's not going to They kept assuming that it wasn't cancer. And I had my colonoscopy, and of course it was. Um, and, and then I went through an entire year plus of treatment and surgeries and such. And, um, and then I go back for follow-ups all the time, you know, and so it's, it, cancer lives with you forever. Um, uh, it, it sometimes recedes a little bit, and you kind of feel like somebody else was the one that had it, but it, um, it's, it's there forever. It's there, but it doesn't define you. It absolutely does not. I just live with cancer. I mean, right. like, that's right. the, you know, I mean, I'm, uh, they got everything. My margins were good, which means they, they didn't find any additional cancer when they tested the cells around where they removed the cancer. Um, but, you know, every March comes and I say it's colon awareness, colon cancer awareness month. And I'm telling you right now, if you are anywhere near the age of 50, drinking that disgusting stuff and getting a colonoscopy is not the worst thing that's going to happen because if you don't do it and you find out on the other side that you have cancer, you're going to wish you would have just drunk that stuff and, right. and done that. And had you done colonoscopies before? No, I wasn't of the right age. And this yeah. is what, you know, I think the age probably needs to be lower. Um, and I think there's a movement for that to happen. They also are working on a whole bunch of different ways to maybe make the colonoscopy a little less um, overwhelming for people, like different methods of cleaning you out, if you will, right. so that they can uh, perform the procedure. Um, and also, um, there are other tests that maybe could give information a little sooner. You know, like they have like these private little kits that they can send. Kaiser will send them in the mail and have you mail in this thing. And if they see something in there, then they'll have you come in for additional things. Um, but it's, it's the preventive side. You know, we're so lucky to have this medical system that is able to detect these things. And cancer is all about early detection so that you can just get it done quickly. What's certainly interesting, uh, I was, as you were describing this, I was thinking back that it's uh, often taken some uh, national celebrity uh, to be afflicted with something. I, I remember back to Betty Ford, and I think she had breast cancer, yes. and, uh, and all of a sudden people, women were getting checked and self-examinations and and people are talking about it. And you know, that's the other thing. I mean, when I was younger, right. cancer was the C word, and you whispered it, right? I mean, right. you didn't, and now people will talk about it. And really, I mean, that's the, there's no shame in it, for sure. 
um, and you need the support of your network, whether that's friends, family, people you don't even know. I mean, my tribe, I was surprised at people that didn't show up, and I was equally as surprised with people who did show up, you know? I mean, it was, it really changed sort of the way I view my community. I mean, in this community, my tennis women in particular, my goodness, I mean, they fed my family mm-hmm. every week for many months, and so, I mean, it, uh, the school community, I mean, it's, Petaluma is a special place. I'm not, I mean, I like to believe that it happens everywhere, but I really believe this town is a special place. And it's a special place also because you had that experience and that that, that helps to make it special. But I, I happen to agree with you. I've seen our community come together for lots of reasons for, to help individuals, families, yes. etc. The work never ends because something's happening right. all the time uh, in our world. Uh, I remember when I was in school, you're talking about the C word, and when I was in school, um, a patient, we had this seminar on dealing with illnesses for pastors and rabbis to train, and this man got up and told us this amazing story that he and his wife went to this, their doctor's office, he had had some tests, there were some concerns, and the doctor said he's referring um, him, the husband, to a specialist. And so he takes out an envelope, hands it to the wife, and says, Would you please take this to the specialist? Uh, this is the report. And that was it. Yes. And the report went in their glove compartment, and they drove around with that answer to the question is, What's the matter with me? Right. Why am I being sent? For three weeks, the doctor wouldn't tell him at that stage in the evolution of medicine, Mm -hmm. wouldn't tell him what his disease was. And he said every day he got in that car and he just stared at that door to the glove compartment because... Not wanting to open it. Not wanting to open it, but it wasn't given to him to open. It was like he was separate from the information that was in there. It was really a sad, sad story to think of what he had to go through. So you're being able to sit here and talk about it and to let the listeners know that it's okay to talk about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Really it's necessary. It's you know? necessary. I mean, it really is. Yeah. Yeah. How'd your family handle it? What was it like for them? Um, my kids were young. You know, mm-hmm. my my son was in going into third grade and my daughter was in sixth grade. Uh-huh. So we had been contemplating some change in school my daughter at that point decided, you know, we need to, it needs to remain stable. And so, and I'm, and I'm glad it did because, um, the school she stayed at Valley Vista was, uh, those parents were unbelievable in their support of my kids and my, and us, you know, I mean, me, my husband, they, they really, uh, took care of us. And, um, and so it was, uh, it's tough to tell your kids that because they have questions and fears and they don't understand it and they were little and I had all of these you know I'm not ready to go and and uncertainty and even though your doctors are telling you we can yours is the type that we can get you through mine was stage three it had you know um I had no other this will be TMI but I had no other polyps except for this one big mass Mm -hmm. and um and so they kept saying, you know, we're going to 
do these courses of treatment. We're going to get rid of it, and you're you're going to go. You're going to be okay. Um, and at that time, they said your siblings, no matter how old they are, need to have a colonoscopy now. Uh, so there's a baseline, if anything. And it turned out that my sister has the same type of polyps that turned into my cancer, but they were able to remove them. So now she, you know, she started colonoscopies five years earlier than she would have otherwise. And they said mine grew for five to ten years. Yeah. So those five years could have saved me a whole lot of, you know. So um, it's everybody's situation is different, and hindsight's twenty twenty. But I remember at the beginning of the process, um, I met a woman here in Petaluma, and she said, you know, it's I'm on the other side of it, and so there you'll you'll find that there are blessings mm-hmm. in cancer. There was no blessing in my, I mean, like, I had no idea what she was talking about. Um, but now that I'm on the other side and I try to offer those words of advice and support for families that are going through it now, we have a friend who's just starting the process, and I'm like, you know, I know what you're thinking right now because it is scary. You know, you don't know what to expect. And so I feel like if people talk about it more, then there's a mentor somewhere for everybody if, if it doesn't become scary to talk about. And um, yeah. Your uh, story of your sister going ultimately because you went and having that piece of information reminds me that in, uh, in uh, Jewish tradition there's a principle that says kar mitzvah mitzvah that the reward for doing something good is, is something else will be done for good. And so the fact that you started to take care of yourself, that you pushed your medical providers to figure out what was going on with you and were in partnership with them, led ultimately to your sister having something actually good happen to her, which was the discovery of this, of the polyps. And she will not get cancer now, right? I mean, like they're going to... Right, that kind of thing. So it it reinforces that, that there's there's this... um, community that forms around it, and there's there's the good uh, that can come out of it. Most definitely. Do you have any idea inside of yourself um, where that positive energy comes from? Um, I, I, I love life, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm not, um, I enjoy people, and I just... I think that uh, there's a whole lot of negativity that you could weigh yourself down with, but I just have always chosen that that really is harmful. And so I, I don't know where it comes from necessarily, other than the fact that it's just, it's, I, that's how I roll. <laughs> that's how you roll. You know, different people label it different things. For some people, they would say, it's my faith. For some people, uh, it's part of my nature. For some people... Well, I was inspired by the, by this other person who gave me that uh, will uh, inside. So it's an interesting question for us to figure out mm-hmm. at some time. But we do know that taking the positive also is part of the cure. It can be, yes. Uh, it can be part of the cure to, to survive, to fight, to look forward to the life part yep. uh, is, uh, is really an important thing. So... How do your kids see this now? Do they have any, are they now removed from it? Um, is it still part of your home? So your it's, family um, my daughter, 
never really, I, she's very quiet with her emotions and, and such. And so I'm certain that she's thought about it a lot. I hear it come out in different places. Um, and she is always the first that wants to help support a family that we hear is going through it. So she'll jump in to be the helper role. My son, who was the young, is the younger one, um, he was really young to be processing it in a way that he was able to articulate. And so it's coming out more now that he's able to express himself better. It's really interesting. You know, it's been, I just had my three-year, quote, cancerversary that we like to call it in March. And um, he, he talks about things. He, he asks questions that I'm surprised are happening now. You know, it's, it's, he, he wants to know that everything's going to be okay forever. Right, of course. He really course. needs that reassurance, and he's, he's always worried. You know, yeah. he, he pays attention to when my appointments are, and um, so I try not to overshare with him because I don't want him to worry. Right, of course. But we were straight up honest with them about everything. I mean, once I knew the diagnosis, I was very um, honest with them the whole time, and any time they did have questions, they came with me to a chemo session. Like, they they were part of it. They needed, you know, I... Um, I think it helped them understand it and not be afraid of it because the the caregivers are phenomenal, first of all. I mean, the entire oncology department at Kaiser is just beyond anything good. Um, and they just made the, you know, everything okay. And so I think when you involve them in it, then it's not as scary for them either because it's the imagining piece, oh, yes, you know. I often get the question about uh, should uh, should we tell our young child or should the child go to a funeral? Should the child be told about medical things? And that's exactly my answer: that their imagining become can become yes. worse uh, than the reality of whatever the it is that they would uh, would need to, uh, to confront. And also, you can share it in different ways. You know, I'm not going to tell them the same way I told my sister, right. but um, they're smart. They're paying attention. They sense when there's something that's not right. And we tell them to tell the truth all the time. And and um, they do what we do, not what we say. And so I really wanted to make sure that they knew I was being honest with them because I want them to always be honest with me. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> I remember my, as an adult, my I would call my dad once a week and um, one time I called, I said, how you doing? He, okay, okay, I'll be out soon. I said, out, out, out of what soon? He said, well, I had a heart attack. Oh, my goodness. Oh, and he just, you know, this is just telling me. And, you know, and he said, yeah, I've been in three times over the past month and, you know, this kind of thing. And it was trying to hide these things. And it complicates life it so much. It really complicates life. You know, and this, uh, you know, one of the things you've talked about is the community that formed around you and the people. But I also realized that ultimately each of us is really alone. Mm -hmm. Each of us is really alone. We can be in a room with 50 people, but if we're feeling a pain inside, yes, it's nice that they're there and we feel loved and all those kinds of things, but we're really alone with that, right. that, that it's ourselves. and. 
when we go to sleep at night, when we wake up in the morning, uh, we are alone. What was that part like for you? Um, well, HGTV, the Home uh, Improvement Channel, is a great distraction. Uh-huh. And I basically worked on our house remodel for uh-huh. the six months that I was laying there on the couch with, you know, I mean, like it was, I really took great pains to just distract myself. I mean, is the honest answer. Sure. I, I, If I felt myself going, I mean, the shower, even now, is still my place where I'm just going to, I lose it. You know, it's, it's um, that's my breakdown moment. And I'm like, okay, today's going to be a 30-minute hot shower. Or, you know, I got to nip this in the bud. It's going to be a five-minute shower, you know. But for the most part, I just really tried to sort of, check out into mindless things because um, part of the process of getting through cancer and the treatment is you got to be looking at that little light at the end of the tunnel as getting out, Mm -hmm. not the train coming at you, right? And so it's, um, I just really wanted to get through it with as much dignity as possible. And it sounds like you have. I hope so. But it's a reminder, you're telling that little bit of the story, that it's not all glorious, it's not all the community, because there are moments. A lot of them. And a lot of moments in there. But it's that inner strength, it's that community that you formed. It's It's the life partner that you chose. My husband was phenomenal and is. I mean, like he, yeah, he stepped in. And I have to add, there's the the other component. <coughs> excuse me, the other component piece of human nature called hope. Indeed, that hope is is a such a powerful force in the lives of human beings, whether it be the personal, the medical, the cancer, whether it be national hopes uh, for uh, for hopes for your family, for your children. Hope is a very, very, very important part of uh, keeping us alive and giving us the positive energy uh, we need to be able to survive in this world. Indeed. So I want to thank you, Tracy Perlick, for being with us today and sharing your journey with us. Thank you. In an intimate way. And we're honored to be able to be part of that. That's really important for our listeners. And may you continue to have anniversaries that are clear <laughs> Indeed. And, and open and your family, etc. continue to celebrate life together. Thank, Thank you. you. So if anybody you. wants to come to uh, learn more about tennis, we're going to be at AUKUS on April 30th from okay. 6 to 8. Okay, you've got it. And you are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted at KPCALP Petaluma, California. Have a great day.
Thank you.